have a sense of purpose? That's a tough question. Sometimes I'm not sure if I do. It can be really difficult to find it. But once you have that purpose, that thing that makes you do more, do better, it's amazing what we can accomplish. And I can tell you, three months ago in K2, it was the most difficult climb of my life. But having that purpose is the difference between turning around and keeping, keeping going. On Mountain Meister, we explore topics that apply to all of our lives, like having a sense of purpose, by finding examples of those topics in the extremes. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. Today, we welcome Alan Arnett. Alan, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, Ben. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. For the listeners who don't know Alan, he is an alpinist, speaker, and Alzheimer's advocate. In 2011, he summited Mount Everest on his way to completing the seven summits in less than 11 months to raise awareness and funds for Alzheimer's research. Alan is also the oldest American to summit K2, which he did on his 58th birthday. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Outside Magazine cited Alan as the most respected voice on Everest and today he joins us on Mountain Meister, the most respected voice on Everest. That is quite a compliment. <laughs> it, you know, it, it was. I really appreciated uh, their generosity on that. But, you know, uh, covering Everest for me on my blog is, is, has turned into a, a passion as, uh, as much as climbing is. So I, I appreciated their acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a lot of fun. And I can see why. Like you said, your, your blog and your website is so robust you have just like an incredible collection of information. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's an obsession. Because what <laughs> happened was that the way it started very briefly is back in the late 90s, um, I made my first trip over to Nepal in 1997. And I, then I began to think about climbing. I did a trek, a simple trek to Everest Base Camp. And I saw Everest and Choyoyu and Amitabhlam, and then I started thinking about climbing them. So I started looking for information. And back in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Internet was nowhere near what it is today. So the information I found was all marketing fluff. And, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, hey, you know, come climb Mount Everest. It's a simple thing. You can do it. And I'm like, really? And so when I started climbing these mountains, I had a whole different um, experience. And, you know, between gear and training and everything else. So I just started to chronicle my climbs on the website. And, uh, and people appreciated the fact that I would say, you know, I turned around or I was puking on the summit or whatever it was. <laughs> and, um, you know, and people appreciated that honesty. And it took off from there. I have about a billion followers a year on it. Absolutely. And honestly, from kind of like a new age guy like me who's been around for when the internet has really been a quality resource, this yeah. is still extraordinarily relevant. 
Well, I you know I work things. I, I work hard to keep it relevant. I uh, I update that gear page probably four times a year. Um, every time I go on a big climb, I, I do I do a frequently asked questions, and I you know I, I write a very detailed trip report. I'm assuming the people that are coming to to read my blog that they're not looking at it just for a quick you know a quick hit. Right. They're actually looking at it for research, and so I take that very seriously. And I'm not a, I'm not shy about writing a long article because I know people will read it. And for the listeners, Alan didn't pay to come on here today. This is all <laughs> very genuine. AlanArnett.com is a great great resource for anybody looking to learn more about these mountains. So it's taken you what 15 years to amass a lot of that stuff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very impressive. Um, but you you didn't start climbing until your thirties, correct? Yeah. You know, I, um, I I sometimes I wish I would have, but I was not a you know, living in the back of my car and you know trying <laughs> to go out and and climb and being a dirt bag climber. Even though I have, I say that with utmost respect for the dirt bag climbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a you know I got a college education and went to work and. You know, I got all the trappings of life with the, you know, the car, the boat, the family, and the career, and and, um, and I was living over in Europe in Geneva, Switzerland, mm-hmm. and I was looked at. I kept seeing Mont Blanc out my window, and I had moved from Colorado. I had done one fourteener here in Colorado at Long's Peak, and you know, I always had that kind of that that internal drive to go out and be in nature. But living in Europe, I um, I hired a French guide and went and summited Mont Blanc, mm-hmm. and uh, that was at age thirty eight. And and Ben, that was the beginning. And every year since then, literally for the last twenty years, I've done one or more, many more uh, climbs each year. Well, so normally the the mountaineers that we have on this show are basically doing this thing full time. They have the opportunity to go out whenever they want. But most of our listeners don't have that opportunity. So let's right. give them something really relevant. Any like advice that you have or that you have experienced, anything you've experienced throughout your career that would help them kind of like explore this kind of stuff when it seems like they don't have the opportunity? Well, I, I think that just go out there and do it. Um, uh, you know, we have beautiful mountains here in the U.S. You don't have to go to Peru or Argentina or Nepal. Um, for the U.S. listeners, you know, we can we have great mountains in California, Colorado, uh, in New England, and uh, you know, international people in Australia, New Zealand, Europe, obviously. So. You know, just get out there and make friends. Join a climbing club. Every state that has mountains has a climbing club. Um, or just find buddies. There's great websites now, uh, like here in Colorado, 14ers.com or Summit Post or Mountain Project, where you can, you know, you can hook up with people and, and uh, go off and climb. So my big advice is that don't just sit, sit at home looking at your computer and reading about it. Get out there and do it. Yeah. So we fast forward a little later in your life and – you know, you'd been climbing mainly for recreational purposes, as we talked about. And then you start to see things that are a little off with your mom. Can you describe to the listeners what was happening there? Yeah. It um, First off, let me just say that my mom was the memory keeper in our family. She had eight brothers and sisters. Wow. So, yeah, huge family. So I've got more cousins. I literally don't know how many cousins You're I have. You're one of those people that just has, like, enormous family reunions. Oh yeah, yeah. You go to it. There's like 300 people, and you know, and you don't, you really don't know who they are. You got to be careful, you know, what you what you do there. So, <laughs> so you know, um, and so my mom was, you know, I'd call her up, and I'd be out, you know, doing my business work, traveling around the world or whatever. I, I stayed really close with my parents. I was always close to them. But then one Christmas, I was home. This is back in um, around 2003, 
And I noticed that my mom, she normally just was very immaculate about her hair and her dress. And uh, she was not paying attention to that kind of stuff. And I noticed that she was very um, repetitive in asking questions. You know, she would say, so, you know, she'd ask me a question about how was work, and I would answer it. And five minutes later, she would ask exactly the same question. Mm -hmm. So the signs began to emerge. It was the personal care. It was the interest in things that she always was interested in. She no longer had interest in it. And then the obvious one of the memory. So, you know, you kind of fast forward a little bit. And my dad, um, he was... um, he was 88, and you know his body was failing. He had uh, congestive heart failure and kidney disease, and so he was in intensive care. And uh, this, they live in Memphis, lived in Memphis, and I went back there to go, you know, uh, check on my dad and see what was going on. And and I remember talking to my mom. Uh, we were at a Perkins restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee, and having breakfast. And I was telling mom that um, I didn't think dad was going to make it out this time, and he was really in serious trouble. And and I remember she. Um, Ben, she put down her coffee cup and she looked at me and just, you know, just perfect clarity in her eyes. Just, I mean, she just was absolutely normal. And she said, now, now who are you again? Mm. And that was the question. That was the moment that changed my life. And I, uh, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and I didn't really know much about um, Alzheimer's. So I started looking into it and educating myself and I was shocked at what I learned. I, um, it, there was uh, really no effective way of diagnosing it. Um, the treatments that uh, were available and still are available only treat the symptoms mildly, and they interact with other uh, psychotropic drugs and cause just horrible side effects. But most importantly, there's no cure. Once you get Alzheimer's, you die. Going back to that moment with your mom, I think it can sometimes be difficult for people to really understand how devastating a moment like that is. Because on one hand, you say to yourself, okay, it's a disease. Alzheimer's is a disease. And the reason that this person doesn't remember who I am is strictly because of the disease. But it has to be difficult to not think, I've spent my entire life with this person, and all of a sudden, everything is gone from their brain. It's just, it's so sad. It was, um, it, it, it was shocking. There was a... Uh, uh, what do they call it, a cognitive dissonance when all of a sudden I just was not able to process that I'm sitting across the table from my mother, my mom, and she does not know who I am. And it, um, and, but you know, instantly the, I think that the, uh, the loving genes kick in. And I remember I just reached across the table and I held her hand and I said, mom, I'm Alan. Uh, I'm your son. You have two sons, Kenny and Alan. And, you're married to Jim. She, oh, I know that. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so we continued to talk, but it was very clear that, um, and then she, and that's the thing about Alzheimer's is that they, they, it, you come and go as the brain is slowly shrinking and, and slowly degrading. Mm-hmm. So sometimes she would remember me and most of the time she just thought I was a, I was a nice man and, and uh, she enjoyed seeing me. And, <laughs> um, but it was just, uh, you know, a fully functional adult, but uh, they require 7 by 24 care. Yeah, the brain is a weird thing. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So, so you essentially decide to dedicate your life to this. You said at that moment you knew that something needed to be done. No, uh, no secrets here. The story was climbing mountains. When did you decide that? <laughs> well, what happened was that I, uh, I just coincidentally, I was working for Hewlett Packard, and they were offering an early retirement program, and I was 51, mm-hmm. so this is seven years ago. 
And uh, my, my father did pass away. And so I decided to uh, take early retirement so I could really take care of my mom. So I did and uh, spent the next three years overseeing her care and uh, spending time, as much time as I could with her. And, and I decided that I would use, you know, it's this, this this old adage of what are your skills? And I looked at my skills and I said, well, I've got a website with a million people a year that read it and they trust me. Um, I can stand in front of a group of people and yak for a while and keep them entertained. And, uh, and I love mountain climbing. So I decided to take those three um, strengths that I had and apply them to a renewed purpose in my life. So I kind of called it Alan 2.0 <laughs> and, uh, and reinvented myself to become a, uh, an Alzheimer's advocate using my mountain climbing as the, uh, as the tool and the professional speaking uh, uh, as the way to reach people. I love it. So were the seven summits, is that what you decided on or were you considering some other things with mountain climbing? Well, I, my original, my first project I did was I called it the Road Back to Mount Everest because I'd, I'd had two previous mm-hmm. attempts. And so this was a third attempt. So in preparation for that, I went and attempted Shishapangma in, um, in Tibet. And I did uh, summit at Aconcagua and uh, a couple of more mountains. And then I went to Everest in 2008. And, you know, that was kind of a, yeah, I, it was an okay project, but it didn't accomplish the objectives. And I realized that I needed to have world-class uh, public relations help. So then I, then I did say, you know, I've got to come up with an audacious goal. So my goal was to climb the seven summits in under a year. And I uh, started looking for sponsors to help me with the, not only the finances, because it was very expensive, but also public relations. And literally, I love this, that via Facebook, I, uh, an old high school friend connected me with a contact at Johnson & Johnson who was working on an Alzheimer's drug, and they said, we'd love to work with you just to raise awareness. So they became my exclusive sponsor and in 2011 took off on the Seven Summits. Isn't that amazing? Facebook. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Technology these days, you know, a lot of people complain about it, but there's never been a time like this where technology can just help you discover and connect so many different things. Uh, I'm a proponent. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, had, I had called every gear company in the world, uh, you know, from North Face to Marmut and everybody asking, you know, for sponsorship or, you know, something. And, and, and most of them literally did not even return my call or my email. Because, and I soon gl- learned that they get 100 requests a day for sponsorship. <laughs> and so, you know, here was this guy, 54 years old, wanting to raise money for Alzheimer's. And, and one of them told me to my face, you know, so look, that's not, our, that's not our target demographic. And they totally un- did, missed the point, didn't understand that so many uh, uh, teenagers uh, basically have to come home and take care of grandmom or granddad or live with them that have Alzheimer's. So, in fact, that's one of the things that I've been able to do is to reach a younger generation, a different demographic than the traditional Alzheimer's nonprofits do. Um, and that's been able to, you know, at this point, then I've reached about 50 million people through my mountain climbs and raised a quarter of a million dollars that 100% went to, uh, went to research. That's incredible. The thing which resonated with me there, though, was you kind of getting denied all the time, Alan 2.0, uh, <laughs> encountering something different than maybe what Alan 1.0 uh, had originally encountered uh, maybe 10 years earlier. Was it difficult for you to face that rejection? How did you, I mean, that's something that normally uh, younger people fighting to get in their experience, not some person who's retired. 
Well, one of the um, one of the sayings that I have uh, about mountain climbing, and it applies for this as well, is that there's a thousand reasons to stop and only one to go on. And so my purpose was to get out there and to raise money and to educate people about Alzheimer's. So I was a dog with a bone and still am. And I was not going to let go of it. So I knew that going out and asking what I was asking for was, uh, you know, was audacious. Because I'd been, look, I'd lived in the corporate world for 30 years with Hewlett Packard. I had, I had entertained proposals like this on the other mm-hmm. side of the desk. So I totally understood the perspective that these companies had. Uh, but I was not going to let it stop me. Yeah, the fight. Let's just talk briefly about Alzheimer's so people can get a gauge of how uh, how much of an impact this has on the world. I read as of 2006, 26.6 million people worldwide with Alzheimer's. I'm not sure if you have an updated number. And then it is predicted, according to this study, that Alzheimer's will affect 1 in 85 individuals by the year 2050. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another way of looking at that is that uh, we've been talking for about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And during this time, 15 or 20 new people have been diagnosed with having Alzheimer's wow. disease. It's roughly one a minute. Um, there's uh, over 5 million in the U.S. and we're now is uh, close to 40 million worldwide. Worldwide, every three seconds, a new case is diagnosed. But there's another whole side of this, which is often not spoken of, and it's the caregivers. This is, I call them the silent victims. And these are the people that often uh, give up their careers and stay home with their loved one because they don't want to put them into a facility or they don't have the money. You know, it's between five and $8,000 a month. Mm. It's the equivalent of buying two or three brand new cars a year to care for someone in a facility. And, um, and once you get Alzheimer's, as I said earlier, it's fatal. And it's, uh, it, a typical life expectancy is about eight years. So it devastated my parents' finances. They'd worked for, you know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And my mother was approved for Medicaid two days after she died. <laughs> and the one final thing, Ben, is that the amount of money that's spent on research pales in comparison to other equally horrible diseases. I don't want to say that Alzheimer's is worse than others, mm-hmm. but, you know, um, with cancer and diabetes and childhood obesity and other very difficult diseases, our government, through the National Institutes of Health, spends over several billion dollars a year. Alzheimer's, the National Institutes of Health, invest $500 million. Wow. So another way of looking at it is that for every dollar spent on care, they spend one penny on research. So the equation is upside down. Right, yeah. Yeah. Huh. And so you raise money for all research, correct? I do. I, I work with several different nonprofits. Um, I, 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 each one has a very different uh, uh, specialty. Like one could be awareness, one could be caregiver support, one could be working as a political action committee trying to lobby the government, and then another one does peer research, like the Cure Alzheimer's Fund. They do pure research. And what I like about them is that all of their overhead is underwritten by uh, other sources. So 100% of the donations, so 100% of that $250,000 that we've raised thus far, 100% went to uh, to uh, medical researchers. Something which, again, is scary about Alzheimer's is that there really is not much known about the causes, correct? And right. but But one of those that I think has come out relatively recently is that there could be some genetic influence. 
Yeah, um, you know, there's what they what they're doing is is a process of elimination, um, and they really don't know what causes the um, the plaque buildup in the brain. The amyloid beta is, is what, the source of the plaque. They really don't know if that's the reason you, that the brain begins to degrade, or it's an outcome of something else. So whether it's a symptom or the cause. Um, one exciting development that's just happened in the last um, uh, couple of months is that the, through some funding by the Cure Alzheimer's Fund, uh, Dr. Rudy Tansy has and his team up in Boston, they're able now to grow brain cells and then have those brain cells develop those amyloid uh, beta plaques that is Alzheimer's. And so they're doing it in a Petri dish. So now, what used to be, they would take go through mouse trials and eventually human trials to test a drug. They can now test it literally in a, in a dish, mm-hmm. in a lab, in a matter of weeks. So this is unbelievable. This is a huge breakthrough that all this money and research is resulting in, is the ability now to test different drugs and different hypotheses to find out uh, it, how we can stop the disease, slow it down. But the other factor, very quickly, Ben, is kind of your point about genetics, that uh, there, is a, there are biomarkers, that there are genes, that if you, if you have the gene for Alzheimer's, doesn't mean that you will get Alzheimer's. But if you get Alzheimer's, you do have that gene. Yep. So you can be tested for it. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I see the point when you're in your 30s being tested for it. But if you begin to have memory problems later on in your 50s, and Alzheimer's can hit anybody at any age. It's not necessarily an old person's disease. But uh, that, the causal factor is primarily age. So if you're over 65, it's pretty. Um, you got like a 50 percent chance. This is this is also another topic of conversation around yeah. whether or not people should be tested when there really isn't a cure. Like, sh- what's the point of knowing if you're going to get Alzheimer's? Have you been tested? You know, I have not. In spite of the fact that my mother and two of my aunts, two of her sisters, have all three died from Alzheimer's. Um, you know, I have not. Uh, my attitude is that I'm going to live my life to the fullest. The, uh, the, the Every researcher, I think, will agree that the one thing that you can do is a healthy heart equals a healthy brain. So by staying, taking care of yourself from how you eat to exercise to staying socially active, um, that's the best thing you can do to stave off Alzheimer's. But the point about whether it, uh, knowing that you have it or not, Actually, uh, in this case, ignorance is not bliss. Mm-hmm. Because if I had known that my mother was coming, was had Alzheimer's back uh, before she really became symptomatic, then we would have done a lot of things differently. For example, uh, insurance policies, long-term care policies, uh, looking at different facilities that have huge waiting lists for the quality ones, um, power of attorney. Uh, things like getting our names on on the house um, deed. There's a whole lot of things that you can do that makes life a lot easier. Then you can focus on just making sure your loved one is safe and loved. Very good point there. Let's get into Alzheimer's and how it relates to your mountain climbing, because uh, we are on Mountain Meister. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you you were climbing for personal reasons. Now you're climbing for Alzheimer's. How how has your climbing really changed? Uh, like your purpose? Yeah, you know, um, 
it's, it's a little embarrassing to say, but it's very, very true that when I first attempted, let's say, Mount Everest back in 2002, um, you know, it, it was really uh, bragging rights. Uh, I wanted, it was selfish. I wanted to go climb that mountain and, you know, it was kind of a continuum of different mountains I kind of built up to it and had done Amitabhlam and Choyoyu and, you know, some other ones, uh, Denali. And um, so I really wanted to go try Everest. And, and I got there, and a couple of things happened. One, I was just very much underprepared. Between my job, I didn't train well enough. I under, underestimated the, how difficult it was going to be to climb Everest. And, um, and then I, got, you know, I had the normal um, you know, altitude ailments and things like that. And, but then when I went back, and I tried it again three more times and without a success. But when I went back in 2011 as part of the seven summits for Alzheimer's, um, I was hell-bent to summit that mountain. And so all the stuff before that would have stopped me by getting sick and, and other things. So I completely changed my approach to climbing Everest than I did in the pre- three previous times. But it really was that purpose. Mm-hmm. And I have found that ever since I have changed my attitude about climbing mountains, I can now climb for a purpose. And I can tell you, three months ago in K2, it was the most difficult climb of my life. But um, having that purpose is the difference between turning around and keeping keeping going. Isn't that that is incredible? Like how do you think all else equal, right? On a maybe on one of those failed attempts, all else equal, fitness, age, if you would have had the purpose there with you on the failed attempt, do you think it would have been a successful attempt? Um, in some cases, absolutely yes. Uh-huh. In some cases, no, because there were you know physical problems yeah. or things like weather or whatever. But you know, I, I look. I just summited K two at age fifty eight. I didn't summit Everest at age forty four. So something's different. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So here's here's something funny. Uh, have you read Born to Run by Christopher McDougall? I have not. Okay. So in Born to Run, it's about ultra marathoners and. Christopher McDougall brings up this very interesting stat. He says that this study looked at data across marathon runners. And they said if a person, the average person starts at age 19 running, they peak, their time peaks at around 27. So it takes eight years to get uh, to their peak. Then if you look at it, and this is a really interesting part, if you look at it on the other side, how long does it take for them to decline back to that time that they had when they were 19 years old. So if it took them eight years to get to the peak of 20 at 27 years old, how long do you think it took for them to get back down to that time that they had when they were 19? Probably half. You say half of the eight years? Right. Okay, so 31 years old. The data shows that the average age when they reach that time is 63 years old. Oh my gosh. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. So I'm wondering if it's the same thing for mountain climbing because you just climbed K2 and you're 58 years old. Maybe you uh, you still have a lot of climbing left in you, Alan. Well, I do. Thank you. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> I very much would like. I mean, I look. As I said mountain climbing is my passion. I uh, the purpose provides me the the impetus, the fuel to uh, to keep going when I want to turn around. But just 
I just I just thoroughly love being in the mountains. I enjoy sleeping, you know, on the ground for six weeks, not taking a shower for two months, you know, eating uh, in the tents with friends and the camaraderie and just the whole the whole thing just it, it feeds my soul and it just um, it just nurtures my essence in a way that nothing I've ever found does. And I, you know, I'm going to keep on I'm going to keep on climbing as long as this body will let me. I like Alan 2.0. <laughs> could alan 1.0 ever have seen alan 2.0 could he have envisioned him oh, good lord no no look when i was i ran track in high school and every day i would throw up and have to ice my ankles so my my old high school friends look at me now and they go what happened <laughs> Very good. All right. The moment everybody's been waiting for, Alan, we get a gear recommendation from all of our Meisters, and we need the same from you. Give our listeners one or two things that they have to have. All right. Let me start off with the uh, with the, the, the technical one. Okay. That uh, it, it's, my, it's my satellite telephone. Uh, I was able to call my, uh, my wife from every summit, and she liked, she did like to say that, um, that, uh, um, She's the only wife, the only spouse has ever been called from the summit of every mountain on the, on the planet. <laughs> that is that true? That might yeah, be true. It, it might be true. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I I made it a point, and uh, we, I would call her every day for ten or twenty minutes, and factor that into the cost just to stay in touch. And even we would just you know talk about the cats or something. But also, it became my lifeline to tell my story. So I used a uh, typically I would use a Thoria. Uh, satellite phone or iridium in places where Thoria didn't have the coverage, and uh, then I would use it to hook up to a uh, a small handheld computer, a PDA at the time, uh, or more you know, anyway to uh, post on my blog and also to do voice dispatches and things like that. So for me, uh, the satellite phone was a non-negotiable item. And just a real quick, real, real quick headline is that in 2008 I was on Everest when the Chinese shut down the north side because of the. Uh, they want to take the Olympic torch up there. Mm-hmm. So they came along and they confiscated everybody's satellite phones. And I had to go and literally uh, steal my satellite phone back from the Chinese because I just was not – I was willing to get thrown off the mountain if I got caught just, uh, stealing it back. But I did and, and uh, had a happy ending to the story. Wow. <laughs> um, the other thing that, uh, that is uh, something that goes with me on every one of these expeditions is a, is a decent pillow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting a good night's sleep is the most important thing. I asked uh, Garrett Madison, um, who I went with on K2, I said, you know, he's a, he's a professional mountain guy. He's taken more people to the summit of Everest than he, any other mountain guide. And I said, Garrett, what's your favorite uh, gear? And he says, minus 40 sleeping bag. Mm. And we got to talking about that. And it's true. If you, you know, you have to have a good night's sleep in order to have a good day on the mountain the next day. So for me, you know, a good sleeping bag and a, uh, and a pillow. Or non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. <laughs> the satellite phone and the pillow on Alan's Meister profile page will have highlights of today's episode. A quote from you, Alan, on your Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. To close, I have a question that I asked Dave Hahn and a few other Mountain Meisters, and I'm curious what your response is to this question. When I finished, I recently ran this marathon and I had some expectations for emotions of like what I would feel when I finished. And I was so surprised at the emotion that I actually had when I finished. 
I'm curious if you have experienced something similar, like being surprised at what you felt when you finally reached a summit. You know, uh, yes. And um, I've been on 37 major expeditions since I was uh, 38, so 20 years ago. So 37 expeditions in 20 years. And I was uh, not prepared for my emotions when I summited K2 on my birthday, um, July 27th, 2014. And Ben, the emotion was nothing. I got to the summit of K2 on my birthday, age 58, 18th American, oldest American, and I felt nothing. I got up there and I did the obligatory call back to my blog, you know, and I called a dear friend and I, um, you know, took the selfies and looked around into China and Pakistan and it was an unbelievable day. Not a cloud in the sky, maybe zero degrees Fahrenheit, very little wind, perfect, unbelievable for K2 and I felt nothing. Um, and, it's, it, and I still am processing that emotion or lack of. I think I was so focused on the mechanics and of just doing what I needed to do in order to accomplish the goal um, that it it didn't sink in at the moment. Uh, other mountains have gotten to the top and you know whooping and hollering and hugging and kissing and everything else, but on K two you know there was the hugs and stuff, but there was this 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 almost a wave of sadness that came over me um and it's uh it's hard to explain is that frustrating you want to reflect back and feel something right <laughs> you would think wouldn't you yeah because <laughs> um, i'm very very proud of of what uh what our team accomplished you know we were the first three americans and in, in almost a decade to summit k2 and i was very very proud and very proud to be up there with um, with the Sherpa that I had summited Everest with. So it was all good. There's nothing bad. But I just was not ever in a place where I could, you know, celebrate and, and you know, do the obligatory, you know, I've conquered a mountain and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was such a huge goal that I thought I would never even have a chance to attempt. And not only did I attempt it, but I did it, um, that it, uh, it just still – I'm still having a hard time processing it. Alan Arnett, wonderful having you on Mountain Meister today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. For the listeners, check out highlights of today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Also, check out Alan's blog, website, everything you could possibly need to know about these mountains, or at least that I need to know, (laughs) on (laughs) Alan's website, alanarnett.com. Meister fans, if that doesn't get you fired up to do something awesome with your life, I'm not sure what will. Also, if you haven't listened to episode number 98, our 2015 goals episode, it's the one before this, and it'll get you fired up too. We are force-feeding you motivation in the beginning of 2015. Listen to that. We have a whole page on our website for you to write down your 2015 goals Because studies show that if you write down your goals and you make them public, it increases your chances to succeed. So that's exactly what we're giving you the opportunity to do. For those of you who are true, dedicated Meister fans, you're still listening and you're getting rewarded for it. 
from January 20th to 24th, I will be in Salt Lake City at the Outdoor Retailer Trade Show talking to all sorts of different outdoors companies. They have so graciously offered to give the Meister fans a ton of free stuff, like so much that I'm not even going to be able to carry it all home with me. Then I'm going to be turning all of these conversations about the latest and greatest gear in the market into a podcast episode where you will have a chance to win a ton of free stuff. Keep an eye out for the Outdoor Retailer episode of Mountain Meister, and if you're one of the first to listen, you'll be rewarded. Until next time, my name is Ben, the name of this podcast is Mountain Meister, and whatever your name is, thank you for listening.